Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want, we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. They need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry, and then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way, and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church, exactly. knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I uh, have just flown in from an international trip and uh, found myself getting a little head cold, but I did not want to lose out on being here with you this morning. And even if I just came for the worship, which was remarkably sweet, it was worth the while. Thank you for uh, trusting Darren, Alex, and the leadership team on this journey. Uh, There's so much stuff going on, calamitous stuff going on around the world in church leadership. And to come and find a community of authentic integrity committed to a great Jesus story and uh, not choosing the soft options but taking the hard line sometimes, it's rare. And I just said that I could have just enjoyed the worship and maybe in 40 minutes' time you too would have said, gee, we wish we'd worshipped longer. Maybe that's what you will say as well. But uh, thank you. 
Thank you for believing in them. Thank you for engaging in this journey. For those of you who've stumbled around a little bit the last few years trying to anchor yourself in a spiritual home, thank you for considering the garden. Um, I know many of you limp into these communities and you come with mistrust and vulnerabilities and uncertainties. We get that. I've been around a long time. Came to faith in the Jesus People Movement in South Africa in the 70s and have watched the unfolding adventures of the church over the last 30 some years so thank you for that thank you to the worship team i really did enjoy uh, the worship i was a worship leader uh, when i was 18 onwards my two daughters one who with her husband has planted a church in Perth, Australia, the second, who with her husband lead worship in a church plant in Costa Mesa. So it's very deep in our passion, in our affection, in our priority. And to just sit and savor some really God-encountering moments was, uh, was very sweet. In fact, if the truth be told, it would be very easy to just step into prophetic ministry after an occasion like that because it just stirs the sensitivity to the heart of God. What is God thinking and feeling and saying right now? What a joy that we serve a God who's not watching from a distance, a la the hymn of uh, Bette Midler. He's not watching from a distance. He's here, he's engaged, he's intimate, he's personal, he communicates, he talks. And... uh, I don't know for whom this is true, but I'm going to be obedient as best as I know how. But in one, and this isn't my message, so I'm going to be very brief and succinct, I hope. But there's a story of a woman called Hannah in the Bible. And we find the opening salvo is she's not able to have a child. And she carries this inability with deep groans and, and moans and the, the, the grieving torment of a dream unrealized. And we find her in the temple crying out to God and and the the priest effectively, or let's translate it into our modern context, the pastor comes in and thinks he's drunk because she's mumbling away to herself. And he kind of rebukes her initially. But, But her response is not one of anger or disdain. It's one of enormous brokenness and tenderness. And she reveals the fact that it's not drunkenness that has driven her to her knees, but it is the absence of a child and the... And, and um, let me read it to you so that I don't butcher the moment. Eli says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And as we were worshiping, I don't know if Hannah is your name or Hannah is your circumstance. But I believe the father would say to you, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And I want to pray. I want to pray for you, Hannah, that the peace of God would truly capture your heart and the deep moaning, groaning, grieving of the inability that you've had to have your deepest wishes met. May God grant you peace. May God grant you favor. And may God grant you an answer to your grieving prayer. Can we pray together? And we'll go to the scriptures. Jesus, we love you. We are mesmerized continuously by the sheer exquisitive uh, majesty that you carry so humbly. We worship you this morning uh, and, and find ourselves deeply honored to be the ones drawn to the throne of grace to find your uh, intimate affection and your intimate knowledge of us. How amazing you are. You don't even take the worship for yourself sometimes. You just mirror it back over us 
with forgiveness, with kindness, with gentleness, with restoration. And if my sensitivities were right and there's a Hannah in the room, I pray this morning that you would grant her peace, grant her favor, and grant her an answer to her prayer. We are hungry to meet with you. We have no need for religious ritual, only for divine encounter. And that's what we long for in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been studying the life of Peter. Now, those of you who may be a little less acquainted with uh, some of the Bible stories, Peter was the bodyguard, or at least self-appointed to Jesus. He loved positioning himself as the guy who was by Jesus' side. And for some obscure reason in 30 years of ministry, I've never really spent an enormous amount of time looking at the story of Peter. I don't really know why. Um, but uh, we find him quite a fay with us in that he was a middle-class middle businessman, it would seem. He wasn't a, a high-end wealthy man. He was a man eking out an existence. He owned his own nets with his sidekicks. Um, we find him on the, on, on the robustness of the waterfront, engaged with others. I, the picture, I, I preach by imagination. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't use the scripture. It just means as I preach... Pictures roll out, and, and I can see him standing on the beach, and at first glance, Jesus, Peter didn't particularly embrace or imbibe the stranger walking up to him. Why would he? It was his waterfront. He was the dominant personality. And Jesus sticks out a hand to Peter, and he says, come, I want you to follow me. And I wonder what Peter's reaction was. Don't sanitize Scripture. Scripture in its brevity, in its desire to get the story to us, doesn't always color between the lines. But I wonder if Peter wasn't fairly dismissive initially. Who, do you, who are you? What are you doing here? Why must I follow you? But, but greater is the conversation I'd love to hear when he got home that night. And his wife says, how was it at the waterfront? And he says, I have something to tell you. And um, she says, well, what is it? I'm really busy right now. He says, I've met a man. <laughs> have you come out the closet? Is, is that what you're trying to tell me? Now, I met a man and I gave my business away. I think his wife would have been stopped in her tracks, don't you? She married a fisherman of some means. A man whose presence she fell in love with, this loud, colorful personality. Now he comes home and he says, everything is about to change because I met a man and because he told me to leave and to give away my business. And I'm sure she said, we have to sit down and talk. Because everything has just changed. I'm rather tickled too by the moment Jesus goes and chooses one of his earliest uh, miracles is when he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Now, now, just for a moment, for a moment of humor, would you step with me into that room as they walk in and Peter's mother-in-law is lying there ill and Jesus goes across to heal her. And I wonder if Peter was saying, Like, just let her die. Don't ruin a good friend. You and I, we've got a really good friendship going here. Please don't ruin it right now. With the, I told you not to, you know. This remarkable. But I tell you why it interests me. Because in the Peter story, we know that he was married. But the scripture never gives us her name. She's unnamed. She's invisible. And she's hardly described. We never know what she does. 
But we know she travels with Peter because when Paul writes about having a believing wife travel with him like Peter, we know that Peter's wife not only left the comfort of her home, and I want to try to make the point and not lose it, she married a middle-class businessman on the Galilean shore to spend her days with some means on a Thursday going and having coffee with her mom at the Jerusalem mall. Her life was organized, everything was ordered, and then Jesus popped in. And everything changed. And you know what was most mesmerizing for me of this little story, then we'll go to the scriptures, was when I read of Peter's execution. Now we rely then not on scripture, but we rely on church tradition. And church tradition has it that the two of them were martyred on the same day. Now I don't know about you, I've been married 34 years, I met Meryl when she was 15 I was speaking at a youth camp. I was 18. I'd just come to faith. She came forward, Meryl did, to, the altar, to an altar call kind of thing. We didn't even know what we were doing back in the day. And we just knew people needed to be prayed for, and we kind of did our mini Billy Graham impersonation very poorly. Uh, we didn't even have someone say, you know, come to the front. We just prayed. We just did stuff. And I asked myself the question, if Meryl and I were to be martyred on the same day, what would I say to her? I'd probably say something like, I'm so sorry. So sorry. You met me when I was a college student about to be a school teacher. You never thought this was what would happen. Or I might have said something like, babe, I really love you. Thank you for believing in the story. Or I would have said something like, um, uh, well done. But according to church history, tradition, Peter never said that. He said this remarkable phrase. He said, remember the Lord. Now, there's enough mannishness in me to want to protect my wife. It helped that I spent some time in the military in South Africa. We all did. So there's a fighter in me. And I know I would have done everything to try to protect my wife but none of that would have been enough. And the thing which, which Peter said made sense of the sheer, brutal, the sheer brutality of this torture, of this ultimate execution was remember the Lord. Now, I want to say that, dear friends, as we transition into the text, when we forget the Lord, Christianity is too hard. When we forget why we do it, whom we do it for, it's too hard. My grandkids are in Perth, Australia. They're planting a church in one of the most difficult cities of the world. It is an exquisitely beautiful city. Less than 1% of anyone in the city goes to any form of worship on any given Sunday. Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Mormon, you name it. Less than 1%. They fight for every single convert they get. They fight. They're on their knees. They're crying out to God. And there are times I look into my little girl's eyes, which I do when I go to Perth, Australia, and I see the struggle in there, and I want to put my arms around her, and I want to say, baby, come home. Come home. Come back home here. But I daren't say it, because when we forget the Lord, it's too hard. But when we remember why and for whom we do it, it's all worth it at the end. Our conversation is around mission. Our conversation is around the track God puts us on to live a life that is humanly impossible. If your life, dear friend, is manageable, possible, achievable, there's not enough Jesus in there. He places us on a journey of impossibility. And that means we partner with him in this exquisite adventure of vulnerability and uncertainty. And therein, 
He comes, manifests himself, and we look back on our life and say, Jesus, you are worthy. Now, let's grab our Bibles, please. We're going to Mark chapter 11. And again, if you're a little less familiar with the scriptures, it's um, three quarters of the way there. Go to the middle, turn right. If you get to maps, recalculate, recalibrate. Mark chapter 11, please. I'm picking up in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, the text is behind me, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. On reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Jesus, Rabbi, look, said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. What a random, poor message Jesus now preaches. Peter asks a question about a fig tree, and this is Jesus' homiletical answer. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. He's saying, hang on, Jesus, I'm not talking about mountains, geomorphology, geology. I'm talking about fig trees, ecology. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. What a random message. In fact, one may argue what a dreadfully poor message. The text I've read is really, if I can use this theater analogy, three acts of one play. The first act is the act that we see Jesus coming from Bethany and he passes a fig tree orchard and there's a tree, at least a tree, and he goes across and he is hungry. That's a little verse we throw away. We dismiss as if it's irrelevant. How important can that really be? Well, actually, this is a vital little verse because it gives us an inkling into the sheer humanity of our Jesus. I'm reading a book at the moment by a Catholic theologian sociologist called Jesus, um, an historical approximation. Great little book. Uh, fat, fat little book. <laughs> but his, his quest is not to try to convince us theologically, but sketch a scenario sociologically around which Jesus lived. There were two to four hundred people in Nazareth, according to him, at the time that Jesus grew up. That's a pretty small town. Two to four hundred. Most families lived in one room called a house, according to his research. And the whole family lived in a one-room place. They all fed onto a common patio where they ate. I'm saying all of that because it got me pondering as just how human is Jesus in my mind. See, I think, folks, many of us, in part, thank, 
helpful to the Renaissance painters, have Jesus with a halo walking a few inches above the ground. We somehow paint a picture of him as being so divine that he's disconnected from our earthly realities. I've just preached this message in South Africa, and I intentionally offended them ever so slightly when I said this. You won't be, I'm sure. Do you know Jesus farted? And you laughed, they went silent as if I just questioned the virgin birth. (laughs) You see, folks, we dehumanize Jesus and we make him divine. And there are many problems and implications on the supernatural piece. If Jesus was God, we can be forgiven for not expecting to do any signs, wonders and miracles. Because when he got to the water's edge, he flicked a little switch here called supernatural God. He walked across the water, got onto the boat, flicked the off button. He walked on water, did a stand-up paddleboard impersonation. He was done, and we look and say, well, we can never do that. So we write ourselves out of supernatural partnership because he is God, we are mankind, and therefore we can never do what he did. Let's eradicate this little switch. Let's take it and throw it away because Jesus was hungry. He was fully incarnate. He was fully man, just like you and me. And he faced every temptation, just like you and me. Why is that important, Chris? Because our very salvation is dependent upon his humanness. That he faced every challenge that you face. I felt as if during the worship there's a man on this side of the auditorium that's wrestling through some big business questions right now. Your business, sir, is going to succeed or not. It's teetering on the edge. And you come in here today saying, God, how do I know if we're going to make it or not? On what basis am I making these decisions? Jesus faced every temptation. My son is 15 and he's just realized that girls are there for more than just pulling hair and teasing. I had to suggest to him the other day that maybe his, um, what do you call it, screensaver on his phone shouldn't be a cool, sexy model. Maybe that's a little sexist and other things. But we think as if when, when the little Rachel, 18-year-old Rachel, walked by in front of Jesus, he was so caught up in worship he didn't see her. Of course he saw her. The devil made sure he saw her. But what he did with the seeing made it lust or purity. But he faced every temptation just like us, but Hebrews says, was without sin. I'm saying all of that, dear friends, because when we are engaged on a story of divine mission, we have to settle the fact that we are partnering with God in the impossible. And he who was fully human, just like us, and overcame those temptations by the power of the Spirit, so empowers us on a journey of overcoming. Make sense? And our very salvation is dependent on the wonder of his humanity, lived out with perfection, and the power of the cross. Oh, how the Renaissance artists have dishonored the very nature and wonder of the crucifixion. Isaiah tells us he was so beaten up, butchered and tortured that it wasn't just a crown of thorns that rested pleasantly on his head with the odd little blood driplet running down his forehead as if for a moment he was tender, sublime and somehow surreal. They beat the heck out of him. 
he was non-recognizable. When those castle doors opened and he stumbled out with a cross over his shoulders, naked by all intents and purposes, his mother stood on tippy-toe saying, is that my boy or is that one of the other thieves that will be crucified with him today? She could not recognize him. His humanity had to be so butchered, bludgeoned, tortured and destroyed that the true redemption of the cross could be fully realized. Otherwise, the enemy comes to us and says, Jesus faced most sins, but not the ones you face. Most temptations, but not the one you face. But we're able to say with eager passion from the text that Jesus faced every single thing that you and I faced, and yet, dear friend, was without sin. But the second thing I see in this text here is he requires of the fig tree fruit, not in season. Now, our immediate response, and understandably so, is, that's not very fair, is it? That's not very fair. I mean, how can you curse a tree for having fruit when it's not in season? Is there any point of application to us on mission from this text? I believe there is, and here it is. We've been lied to that Jesus is very preoccupied with our convenience. I sat with a couple right now in South Africa. They're about to embark on an international church plant. Their son is in 11th grade. He's in the top of the class. He's going to get, he's already been given bursaries to some of the top universities in South Africa. And everyone is telling him to the family, you can't go. This is not a convenient time to take your son out of school when he finishes his junior year and moves international to, to finish his 12th grade year. That is not responsible. Dear friend, that kind of mindset holds us captive from divine obedience. Jesus was offended that the fig tree didn't give him fruit even though it was out of season. And Jesus calls on us on our mission moments, even when it is inconvenient. I was in Perth some years ago, met this cute little girl. She walked up to me with a very proud mom with a baby. Oh, she said, oh, hi, my name's Chris. She tells me her name. I said, oh, well, you've got a foreign accent. What are you here for? Oh, I'm a missionary to Australia. I said, oh, that's very interesting. Chat, chat, chat. And uh, when she was finished, I said, uh, I'll see you at tonight's meeting. She said, oh, no, no, I don't come to the evening meeting. I said, that's very interesting. Why don't you come? She says, oh, no, my my baby goes to bed at 7 o'clock. I looked at her and I want to say, lady, why don't you go back to your home country? You've not come as a missionary. You've come as someone who will live only by the measurement of your own convenience. The very nature of the gospel is inconvenience. I have a very, I was preaching in my brother's church last Sunday. There was a young man who led the worship. Matt, great young guy, 28. There's a picture when we planted our church of the first generation of kiddos. Eight of them, I believe, if my memory serves me right. Four of them on our global worship leaders. Brisbane, Perth, South Africa, Los Angeles, four of them. Can I tell you how they grew up? They were not in bed at 7 o'clock with white sheets and and whales humming. (laughs) They grew up, they grew up from when they were small with their little carry cots in halls like this while mom and dad were praying and worshipping God. They grew up with papooses on mom and dad's chest while we all worshipped and sang our songs of praise. 
They grew up at leaders' meetings. I, I was in a church that we planted some years ago, and they still, at a leaders' meeting on a Thursday night, the kids arrive in their pajamas, and they sleep along the side. They bring their little, they bring their little mattresses, they bring their little cushions, they bring their, their, their little snacks and their toys, and all the kids go to sleep around the building on the sides when the worship starts. Because Christianity is not about convenience. And if you believe that, you've been lied to. Jesus asks for fruit, even if it's out of season. And Matt was one of those. His mother was an S.T. Lauder regional manager. I know because I know them well. They're very dear friends of mine. And she was a woman who never, ever had her makeup or her fingernails undone. She was always a beautiful girl inside and out. And I'll never forget the day they sat in my office, Kevin and Debbie, his parents, and said, Chris, God's called us to Botswana, to Francistown, to go and plant a church. And I looked at Debbie. I said, Debbie, are you okay with this? She said, absolutely. I said, Debbie, all due respects, your makeup is always perfect. You always look so serene. You always look so put together. Tears welled up in eyes. I said, you, your dream was a white, literally a white picket fenced house with the mists of the mountains embracing it every morning. I said, you're going to Francistown, Africa. There are no mists. There are no white picket fences. The rich and the poor live alongside each other. And tears streamed down her face. She said, I know, Chris, but when God speaks, you go. I went to visit them in their little church plant. It wasn't full of expats, wealthy people looking to make a quick dollar. They were full of the local the squatters. And this pristine woman whose life was always together walked me through the squatter settlements, up and down the trash, the junk, and the dogs that forage around. And she walked in there. She would knock on the door. And a woman, a big, big fat mama, I don't know how to say it any other way, was there. And Debbie, because it's okay to say that in Africa, because that's what she is. She's a gogo. She's a granny. And she would look and say, ah! Debbie and they would hug and hug and the the dust and the smells of the rural unpleasant African settings were there and Debbie was full of tears and she was full of tears and I was full of tears as I watched this because when God said I want the fig tree Debbie did not say it's not in season and where's her son now? Leading worship in a church plant. Why? Because he fell in love with the Jesus that wanted figs out of season scene 2, act 2 Jesus walks into the temple. It's an interesting passage. And sometimes the businessmen amongst us and women feel a little bit offended like, Jesus, did you not really get into this whole business gig? Is that what you're on about? Well, obviously that's not what he's on about. But can it be the two things from this little act that I want to draw is this. Firstly, the outer court is where the Gentiles worshipped. That's where the people who could not go into the inner sanctum came to see, was this God real? And Jesus looked and by most accounts fashioned a whip which takes time. And with raw naked anger stepped into that space and disrupted with great venom and passion the economic status quo of that outer area. Why? What was Jesus' point? Could it be, dear friends, what angered him most was that, the, can, I, can I draw it into our context, that the church offered no different alternative to the world. It was the same. 
We do work in the marketplace. We do work in the, in the church. What we do out there, we haggle, we barter. We do exactly the same when actually the very nature of God is just to be holy, is to be distinctively different from. Holiness doesn't mean you become good. Please. Did Jesus save you to become good? How insipid is salvation? So glorious, so rich, so transformative. That now we adhere to morals better than the person next to us. That's not what Jesus had in mind. It was so that we become so distinctively different and there was no difference within the place where the Gentiles were to find God and the place in the market just down the road. And Jesus said, get all the stuff out of here. I want the Gentiles to find me. Back in the day in the 70s, we all did worship albums, even if they were bad. So we did our worship album. The guy who did the recording, the engineer, his partner was the choreographer for the topless dancing at the local casino. So we're in there recording the album. And at one stage, the girls are doing all the vocals. And he, I can't remember his name, I'm sorry to say. But he gets up and he says, stop, 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 stop. And, and he literally runs out, lights up a cigarette and starts smoking furiously. Malcolm, who's the producer of the album, walks out. He says, are you Okay. He looked at him and he said, actually, I'm not Mally. He said, well, what's wrong? He said, I'm around beautiful woman, topless woman every day of my life. He said, but I've never been around women who are like this. I don't know how to act. See, folks, that's distinctively different from this notion that Christianity must so blur into the marketplace and we're all the same and we look the same and we think the same and we speak the same. That's not an opportunity for those far away from God to engage Him. We are distinctively different. Our love, our affection, our language, our speech, the way we live our lives, the way we give our money, where we give our money, where we prioritize our affections, it's distinctively different. People have to say, why? Why? Well, can I tell you about this, Jesus? My sister, is this okay, Darren? I hope this is helpful. My sister's pretty wild. My eldest sister, she, uh, she's got a great story, but um, she loves Jesus so much. She was molested for about 10 years. Gorgeous, blonde blue-eyed girl from the age of 12 till about, I don't know, whatever, in her 20s. Under the threat, if she ever went public, she'd be killed. And my dad would be killed. I've just been in South Africa because my dad's leg was amputated. So every day we're at the hospital... And my sister is as bold and courageous as I've ever seen anyone in this ward, this regular hospital ward. And she would come in, greet my dad. Hey, dad, how are you doing? And then she would go to every other bed. So how are you today? Now me, I'm like, there's no one else here. Hey, dad. She goes to every bed. How are you doing? How's the pain? The pain okay? Have the nurses looked after you? She said, you know what? Let me pray for you. Not can I pray. She's too clever for that. Because they may say no. So she just says, let me pray. And she starts praying. The one day, she's praying for this guy because he can't stop smoking. He's out the ward, in the ward all the time. And it's an amputation ward. So he's hobbling in and out. So this guy shouts from across the way, can you pray for me too? Because I also want to stop smoking. What's my point here, dear friends? Jesus cleared the temple of anything and everything that was an obstruction to people encountering God. The second thing we see in this Act 2, Scene 2 is, what, is that it's a house of prayer 
for all nations. How do we know healthy churches? That's our passion. That's what I give my life to. I travel the world planting churches or helping church planters is a better way to say it. Well, here are two indicators of a healthy church. Number one, it's a church that prays. Don't dream big mission if it's not accompanied by big prayer. It's a community that knows how to pray, loves how to pray, even more more important than this public space. And we love it. The worship, I think Darren's a great teacher uh, with the others that you have in this pulpit from time to time. But there is a greater and a higher call, and it's the call to prayer, the wonderful privilege of engaging God at the throne of grace. Sweet, wonderful, necessary, but of all nations. Now, now can I just, can I be honest with you a little bit? I'm, I'm a kind of a dad person. Let me tell you about Hakim. came to this country, a Turk, to make his millions. He encounters Jesus. He wants to go back to Istanbul to share Jesus with his family, his tribe, his people. Who's praying for Istanbul? Because the church there is a minuscule percentage of one. Do you know that I called the churches in South Africa to pray for you? Let me tell you about Darren and Alex. This is what I said to them. Let me tell you about a really good-looking couple. I don't want to say too much because it'll be embarrassing. We may actually like it too much. Then we have to deal with pride. But, but I said, let me tell you a little about Long Beach. Let me tell you about the, cha- the, the challenges. Who will, pl- who will pray for Long Beach, I said, and the church meeting there? See, the call here, dear friends, is to all nations. A gospel well preached leaks a global component into our heart. In fact, we can't help but read all nations everywhere if the gospel is well preached. It pops up all the time. Can I talk to you about the billion in China? Can I talk to you about the billion in India? Can I talk to you about... Taichung, can I talk to you about Saudi Arabia? Can I talk to you about the churches that we planted in Dubai, Qatar, Abu Dhabi? Can I talk to you about the churches in Cyprus and Bahrain? Can I talk to you about it? Because the gospel, when well preached, ignites a fuel in our heart and we lift our heads up and it isn't about month-to-month Christianity, moment-to-moment or lust-to-lust Christianity. It is about living a life that expands and extends me into a global story and I cannot live an ordinary life of selfish preoccupation anymore. Because this gospel well preached ignites in us a prayer for all nations so that the parousia, so that Jesus can come back. I love pastoral ministry. I love leading people. But if there is a time, dear friends, when I say, please come Lord Jesus, it's the pain that we have to deal with every single day. Broken marriages, abuse, adultery. You name it, it just goes on and on like a tsunami. And then I go to my room and say, please come, Lord Jesus, please. This pain is unbearable for them. Let's go to Act 3. Just two little points and we're done. Jesus goes back to the fig tree the the next day. That's such an interesting thing for me. You know what I love about these young preachers is how committed they are to excellence, homiletical excellence, how to preach a great message, transition point, texts that weave in, accurate and excellent exegesis, how you work the text well. Love it, love it, love it, love it. This is a really bad message. 
Jesus is asked about a fig tree, and he says, no, well, let me tell you about this mountain. And by now, they're just like, you know what, we're not going to stop him and say, excuse me, the big J. We're not talking about mountains right now. We really are on about fig trees. Can you just talk just about the fig tree? And it's almost as if they didn't ask a question. Let me say this to you, please, as we're coming into land. The fig tree to me represents the fruitfulness of yesteryear. They were great years. I love the Jesus People movement. Preaching on the streets every Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. Bands, big concerts. I loved those days. Living in communal houses, sharing everything we had. Jesus was coming back. The rapture was about to happen, we thought erroneously. So we gave you everything. We lived simply. We lived passionately. We lived with abandonment. I loved the 80s and the 90s, helping church plant in over 60 countries around the world. I loved it. Standing on foreign shores in foreign accents, foreign foods, meeting the people. I can tell you about Taiwan when preached there for the first time. And my interpreter was standing next to me. I must have been about 28 or 29 or something. And, and, and at the end, there's this call to the Father heart of God. And these girls, these young girls, I'm putting in late teens, early 20s, run up to the front. And I'm kind of intrigued by it. And as we start praying, they wail, dear friends. Wail. Now, I've been in some charismaniac moments, but this is not that. This is not a bunch of people who've learned how to shake. This is some pretty authentic God encounters happening. And I turn to my translator, and I say, what's going on down here? And she is just weeping. She said, Chris, these are the oldest daughters in our culture the father views it as a dishonor if his first child is not a son, and so he rejects his daughter. And these girls are all the eldest in their family, and their father has rejected them. And when you speak about the father heart of God, that's something they've never seen, never heard, never experienced. Will you pray for them? But you see, friends, this story, Jesus says, the fig tree season is over. You've had fruitfulness. It's been a good season. The fruit was sweet. Yesteryear was favorable. But it's over. Can I lean into you a little bit? Some of you vineyard people who are still locked into the Jordan Wimber days. It is over. God is doing some new things. You can't keep pontificating about what it was like then. The fig tree is over. The season has ended. And it's almost as if Jesus grabs them and 180s them and says, now look at that mountain. I have a new mountain for you to climb. And there are two things you'll need, Jesus says. Turn. Some of you, turn. Turn. You may have been amazingly successful back in the day. Turn. Look, I've got a new mountain for you to climb. And there are two things that are absolutely imperative. The one is faith. You cannot let that mountain speak to you. You have to speak to that mountain. Be removed, mountain. You're not going to intimidate me, scare me, overwhelm me, exhaust me. If God, who is the all-human God, Jesus, as he was who is now in heaven interceding on my behalf, if he is for me, who can be against me? Meryl's in the car studying, my wife. She'll be here for the second service. Because in Easter of this year, God said, I want you, Meryl, to go back to college. 
and go and get a master's in marriage and family therapy. There's your mountain. I want you to leave the fig tree, Meryl. I want you to leave it. Now I want you to take on this mountain. She said, God, I haven't studied for 31 years. Yes, I've done some preaching, but study at a master's level in 31 years? That mountain is too big for me. No, don't let the mountain speak to you. You speak to the mountain. Be thou removed. And if I can say this, I have been so proud of my wife as a 52-year-old to go back to college and she's the oldest in the class by at least 10 years and most of the kids in her class, forgive me, are 25 to 32. And she comes top of the class over and over again but she has to speak to that mountain. What is mission? It's when God gives us a fresh mountain to run at. A fresh assignment. And you cannot do it alone. I land with us. Thank you for being so gracious. I watched a National Geographic um, documentary on the first time Everest was summited. Very moving, very powerful. But there was a key moment when the porters, as you know, carry so far and then they stop and then carry so far and they stop, where there's just a handful of them go up and there are just a handful of backpacks in the snow and they have their final debrief and they're about to start that final ascent and each one of the climbers goes and picks up his backpack and slings it over his shoulders and there is not an ounce of room for anything extra. Not a toothbrush, toothpaste, not a change of underwear, Nothing extra, because even the slightest additional weight will stop them getting to the summit. And I don't know why that moment impacted me until I read this text, because the second component, Jesus says, you can only get to the mountain if you forgive. Seems so random. Victory, mountains, faith, prayer, speak to the mountain, forgive. What a bad message. But you see, folks, please hear me. In our previous fig tree moment, there were people who hurt you, weren't there? There were me. Friends who turned against me, yeah. Stabbed me in the back, sure. Lied about me, definitely. Were unkind, etc., etc. But when I take that backpack for this new mountain and I sling it on my shoulders, this I know there isn't an ounce of extra weight. There cannot be the bricks of unforgiveness because I won't make it to the top. I sat with a man in Perth recently. We were street preachers together. And then his life went pear-shaped, got divorced twice, is now a busker as a hobo on the street. His son is my son's worship leader. It's a crazy story. But I sat with Barry in Perth over a cup of coffee. I said, Barry, tell me. Well, in fact, before I got to tell me the story, all of the 70s stuff spewed out. This, that. Of that person and this person and that and my wife. And I want to say, Barry, time out. There's a reason why you've never left the fig tree paddock. It's because you've never forgiven. You're spinning donuts, loads of noise, dust. But there's no forward movement. Take that backpack off, Barry. There's a new mountain. It needs new faith. But it demands forgiveness. Otherwise, we won't make it to the top. Will you pray with me?
In your inimitable kindness, Lord Jesus, you continuously put us on fresh assignment. But we cannot do it alone. The too many summited Everest could not do it alone. They needed each other. One occasion after the other. I pray this morning in an ambience of such affection to you and love for the Jesus story. Would you come now, Lord, and turn us around. Point that mountain to us one more time and say, that's the mountain I have for you right now. That impossible task, that improbable assignment, that we will speak to it and we will not let it speak to us. I pray today, Lord, that you would empower us with faith. We lean in on you. We close the door to the fig tree season. Great, great fruits, beautiful. But it's over. And for some of you today, dear friends, that previous season is over. Let go of it. Just let go. Open your hands right now. Even just quietly where you see it, open your hands and say, Lord, I'm, I'm letting go. I, I cannot hold on to that season anymore. Even though it was exquisite, those days are over. Now I've got a new mountain and I have new faith and then forgiveness. You've got to empty that bag of those bricks, dear friend. The worship people are going to sing over us just where you're sitting quietly. I'm not that afraid with how you normally bring meetings to a close, but this I know God has spoken today. He started way before I got in the pulpit. But he is doing business with us because there's some big mountains out there for us to climb. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.